Hi, I'm Tom Field, Senior Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today about DDoS attacks and extortion techniques. And it's my pleasure to be speaking with Dennis Burchard. He's Principal Enterprise Security Architect with Akamai Technologies. Dennis, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Dennis, give me some context here. Talk to me about how DDoS attacks have evolved over just the past four years. Well, Tom, you know, DDoS has undergone a serious change in attack strategy, and years leading up to this convergence, it was really used as a means of gaining hacking credibility in the underground, taking out competitors, or just disrupting business normality or the industry. You know, grandma didn't know her bank website was down because of an availability attack. She may just think that the bank was breached or moreover stolen. You know, and in the early years of DDoS, we would report 60% of the attacks were layer three, layer four, and 40% were layer seven, with SSL layer seven making up less than 5%. Now we're seeing 95 to 98% of attacks are layer three and layer four DDoS. Although layer seven is making a comeback in recent months, you know, we still see less than 1% of attacks are TLS based. And you can find these stats in the Akamai State of the Internet report, which is a 12 week summary. But let me expand a little bit on these DDoS TTPs, specifically layer three and layer four. These attacks typically have indicators with you know, low, medium, or high bit per second, packet per second, or connection per second rates. These attacks typically target a single destination, or they can ping pong through the distribution of slash 24s being advertised by the asset. Most of these attacks are spoofed sources, which makes attribution very difficult. In common layer three, layer four attacks are your ICMP floods, uh, TCP abuse, like SIN floods or ACK floods. Uh, we're also seeing a string of UDP reflectors. Now, UDP generally was only fragmentation, but in the recent years, DNS reflection, LDAP, SSDP, which is you know Microsoft's plug and play, SNMP and Chargin, just to name a few, are you know making up 15 to 25% of the attacks. Now, layer seven DDoS, which usually comes with, with high source IP count, high HTTP requests per second, also has the ability to generate multiple source ports or multiple sessions and then send requests over these TCP sessions. Now, layer seven is tricky because it looks legitimate. I mean, it meets all your well-formed standards for that protocol. But the good thing is that these bots and hosts uh, that are generating the attack cannot be spoofed, making reverse engineering attribution or even building IP reputation scores easier. You know, another TTP that's not really being discussed a lot in the industry is operational reconnaissance. How threat actors or state-sponsored APTs are leveraging DDoS to learn the incident response cycles of corporations and how they deploy production change controls is a very interesting detail. Normally, hackers want to hide or mask their intent so they go undetected, which in turn, if detected, are forced to deal with some kind of change control or incident response to mitigate or remediate that attack whether it's a horizontal escalation, breach, or infection. So DDoS has changed a lot in the last four years, and mostly we'll continue to see it. Dennis, I really appreciate these technical specifications you're offering. To follow up on this, what can you tell me about some of the characteristics of today's most common attacks? Well, moving away from conventional botnets, where hackers will infiltrate systems to gain control, beacon back to some kind of command and control, confirming they've been harvested, and then waiting instructions, 
bot nets were being repurposed for other uses. We saw this recently with crypto mining currency hashing and how they're using botnets to tumble, basically. It's lower CPU, lower physical, and also lower power requirements. They can just you know, deploy through infection. But also with the string of exploitable UDP protocols, um, due to lack of updates, there we also saw a huge increase in amplification and reflection DDoS, thus kind of the birth of booters and stressors. So more and more tools were embedding these C2 controls via you know, a, the same common framework, and that allowed for ease of attack and consolidated script access via a common web portal. But more interestingly, um, these threat actors now could rent or lease these botnets out based on user access, secured payments of Bitcoin, or other types of monetary payments or services owed. Now, there are legitimate needs and purposes for booters or stressors, similar to what web application pen testing was, where companies would build services within their own local environments or cloud services to automate for the OWASP top 10. We also saw this evolution begin with some of our largest financial customers, where they would leverage legitimate booters or stressors to validate their own detection and mitigation controls or their provider's defense in depth. Now, the underground hackers also leverage this model, right, by programming their web tools into these same types of UIs and capabilities. And some examples of that were like free tools for one hour use, a maximum number of X attack vectors ranging from layer three to layer four, bandwidth rates under three gigabits per second before having to buy additional licensing or, you know, for higher thresholds or more attacking nodes. Now, shortly after UDP reflectors and amplification protocols started consuming you know, 80 to 95 percent of all DDoS attack vectors quarter over quarter, we started seeing threat actors from groups like Anonymous, Armada Collective, Lizard Squad, or other um, copycat groups trying to, you know, mimic the behaviors of successful campaigns by more mature threat actors. Now, common DDoS attacks will fluctuate. And depending on the targeted asset or the industry and what caliber of tooling the actor uses really dictates the behavior of the attack. We have some customers that get attacked every Tuesday and Thursday. And in a lot of ways, you have to treat these like zero-day attacks. We don't know the destination. We don't know uh, the attack vectors. We don't know the duration unless you've infiltrated the botnet and you can see those uh, commands being issued. We've had some success with that in the past, but it really is a reactionary model. Dennis, one of the topics I talked about up front was extortion. How would you describe the typical anatomy of an extortion attack? Well, that's a good one. DDoS extortion really comes in many forms. And over the last 12 months, they've also changed in their original standards. Campaigns have varied, and we've seen things where they attack first with high capacity, enough to take you offline, then send emails, chat messages via web portals, or customer service calls to your support desk informing them of the event. What is to come and if they don't pay? We've also seen attack first with low capacity in short durations, enough to cause issues and panic, but not enough to bring services down. Then they send the extortion and request for payment. In the most recent attempts, we've seen threats to extort via known hacker groups or APT groups like Fancy Bear. But there are no initial attacks. There's no follow-up events. And there's no attempts for extortion, mostly because the clients either probably have contracted services or they classify it as a low severity risk. Dennis, there seems to be a fair amount of awareness about extortion attacks, but they're still often successful. Why is that so? 
Well, DDoS is just one of those attack vectors that scaling your own capacity, building and tuning your security decision engines, successfully deploying operational rigor and practice for incident response is tough to manage, but there's, it's very expensive also. You know, with mission critical assets and applications hosted on the internet, this has placed DDoS in one of those attack buckets where if you don't have cloud service provider help with scaling and technology advancements for stopping these attacks, it really is a losing game. But also the intellectual curve to harvest and build botnets is getting lower. With booter and stressor frameworks being built in the dark web or paid services for legitimate stressors, it's made instrumenting DDoS TTPs very easy and convenient for anyone to do. Recently, there have been a number of attacks in the UK and Europe that have been pretty high profile. What would you say are some of the lessons learned from these strikes? That's a great question. And the truth is, if you don't have tactical plans for addressing business continuity around availability, regardless of the issue, you're going to be tested, evaluated, and will have to report back that success or failure to the business. Whether it's you know firewalls failing open, load balancers having hardware or software issues, or simply a short duration DDoS attack, multi-vector attack campaign lasting multi-hour, multi-day, is going to cause a domino effect within the organization and potentially the industry, especially with financial services. Um, when one market gets attacked, there are communication vehicles that these businesses leverage in order to determine the threat level of risk or vulnerability. We've seen these types of tactics before against the U.S. financial services industry. For years, hackers or threat actors were targeting them for different types of attack campaigns. For instance, we saw Anonymous targeting the one percenters. They were using DDoS as a tool for hacktivism. You know, these tactics are typically used to justify your position on issues. You know, The more publications that you have around these issues would allow people to opt in to these LOIC or HOIC tools you know, low orbit ion cannon or high orbit ion cannon, and that would build larger botnets, thus giving Anonymous more power on their purpose. But with the recent string of UK DDoS attacks, these don't follow your standard convention of DDoS extortion, or, but other types of comp uh, operational campaigns not related. So these campaigns seem to be leveraging freebooters or stressors. Uh, this assumption is due to their attack duration, attack vector selection, and the attack intensity, which been reported is under three gigabits or at three gigabits per second. It lasts for 60 to 90 minutes or less. If multiple assets are targeted during the same campaign, they will go incrementally in three gig rate jumps. This leads me to believe they are leveraging free infrastructure or cheap networks, enough to cause pain and possibly you know, determine the Europe's incident response for change controls. Think about it. You know, learning how Fortune 2000 companies pivot from an advanced persistent threat when production assets are at risk, gauging their ability to react is a very interesting data point for operational reconnaissance. We're also hearing there is no extortion attempts or mentions within the dark web of these events. Dennis, that's been a great overview of the attack trends that you're seeing. Talk to me now about Akamai. How have your DDoS defenses evolved in response to these attacks? Well, you know, Akamai has taken a unique approach to solving DDoS. One is we've built purposely built distributed cloud networks with different mitigation controls and different redirection methods. For instance, you know, websites that get attacked with botnets will typically allow DNS redirection because there's a, an A record or a host name in that zone. We've also seen the actual DNS zone get attacked as well. So you have to have a start of authority 
cloud that can handle the hosting of that zone. But where assets that may not have DNS resolvers or um, host record entries for them, you may need to use BGP as a form to redirect the traffic. Also, we take an approach of capacity planning that I think is different from the industry, and that's based on the threat landscape. So we have threat research teams and our threat intelligence teams actively looking at what tools, tactics, and procedures these threat actors are using. We also have the statistics of our everyday attacks that we feed back into the platform design. So forklifting these environments by building capacity planning into the design for detection, mitigation, network capacity, data center footprint is a really big advantage. Also, we have over 200 SOC engineers that fight DDoS all day, every day. You know, we typically see anywhere from four to 6,000 attacks per 12 weeks. So being able to take that data, put it into a capacity planning model for success, but being able to leverage the people and the technology together to fight these attacks, because in a lot of ways they do formulate zero day behaviors. But also too, I think and last, that we also have the ability to fail our clouds into other clouds. This allows to provide some network resiliencies within our own distribution for the sake of business continuity for our customers' high-valued assets. Well, Dennis, that's been great insight. I appreciate your time and your thoughts today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom, for having me, and I look forward to the next time. The topic has been DDoS attacks and extortion techniques. I've been speaking with Dennis Burchard, Principal Enterprise Security Architect with Akamai Technologies. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.